Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shalom. Uh, and I want to give a special thanks today uh, to the uh, debut for the first time this morning of the wonderful uh, worship music that our youth uh, worship team will let us in. Uh, and uh, looking forward to many, many more. It was an amazing uh, time of worship. I really want to thank you for that anointed time. Uh, it's the first time uh, meeting us publicly together as a youth group. And I want to encourage if there's any other youth who have any uh, musical uh, interests and abilities in singing or, or playing an instrument, to please see Enoch Pickman. Uh, they would love to have you join the, the, the youth worship band. Uh, and if you're older than a youth and you have any interest in, in, in uh, helping lead us in worship, uh, please see either Ben Wilcox or, or, or Tim Morrow, uh, and they can uh, talk to you about getting plugged in as well. So we're looking to expand both the, worship, the youth worship team uh, as well as the the, uh, the the adult worship team, so uh, so, so please uh, be in prayer about that. Well, I want to start today a new uh, mini series uh, on the classic parables of Yeshua. I'm going to call them uh, parables revisited, and hopefully put a little bit of a new uh, take on, on on some of the parables that are very famous and very well known. Uh, and today I want to start this new series with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, uh, turn with me, uh, um, if you can, to the, uh, Luke chapter 10, not the overhead as well, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Uh, and, we, and before we begin the parable proper, we need to keep in mind the setting, and the context of why and how and when Yeshua told this parable. Uh, what leads up to, to Yeshua giving uh, this parable? Well, we have the context right here in Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. Uh, and, and Luke tells us this. Uh, on one occasion, uh, an expert in the law, meaning a Torah scholar, uh, stood up to test Yeshua. That's the context. He's testing him. Uh, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the Torah? Yeshua replied. How do you, the Torah expert, read it? He answered, with the Shema, and then the Ahakta, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Yeshua replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Yeshua, and who is my neighbor? And this leads into the actual parable. So look at uh, Luke 10, beginning at verse 30. We begin the parable properly. In reply, Yeshua said, A man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A uh, Kohen, a priest, happened by to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, uh, he passed by on the other side. So to uh, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity upon him. And he went to him 
and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Uh, then he put the man on his, on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy upon him. Yeshua told him, go and do likewise. At the end of the parable, Yeshua asked the Torah expert, who's the hero of this story? And the Torah teacher, like most Jews of his day, hated the Samaritans, and hated them so much he couldn't even bring himself up to say the name Samaritan. So what does he say instead? The one who had mercy on him. Now, he could have said something else, similar. He could have said, in the tale, the one who provided transportation for him, uh, and then crisis medical help, and housing, and financing, and time and attention, and all the expense of, of, of losing his own schedule, and, and, and his own potential safety. But instead, he said, he summed it all up, and he said, the one who showed mercy. Because the ministry of mercy includes all these things. Mercy includes caring for the poor and the sick and the oppressed and the powerless and those in need. The ministry of mercy includes meeting people's physical and material and economic needs. We're to proclaim and live out the kingdom of God in both word and deed. The ministry of mercy focuses on deeds, on faith and action. And this parable tells us a lot about that ministry. So let's look at three things that this parable tells us. We'll put them on the overhead, these three uh, uh, points, these themes. Number one, what, what is the law's requirements for mercy? Number two, the essential nature of this ministry of mercy in the life of any believer. And number three, the, the motivation for mercy. So what the law requires, uh, then the essential nature of it, and, and our proper motive for mercy. So let's look first at the context of why Yeshua tells this parable. The expert of the law, he stands up, he wants to test Yeshua. He's trying to trap him, set a trap for him. He's trying to get Yeshua to say something negative about the law. He was suspicious about Yeshua's attitudes about the law. So he wants to trap him about it, and he asks Yeshua, what must I do to be saved? Yeshua, on the other hand, he's laying his own trap for the man. But his trap is a trap of love. Yeshua says, uh, Yeshua, he sees that this man believes that he can be saved by his own righteousness. So he asks him for a summary of the law. And the Torah scholar first references the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and thy soul and thy strength and thy mind. Basically, the law requires a heart and mind that is totally submitted to and totally absorbed by God and God alone. And one aspect of this, if you want a practical uh, example of how this works in your life, is to ask yourself, when you have nothing else to think about, when you're totally free for the moment, where does your mind, where does your mind go? Does your mind automatically focus on the Lord? Or does your mind go somewhere else? What do you do with your solitude? What do you most enjoy thinking about which absorbs your mind and your heart? That's your God. And then secondly, the law, the law expert quotes uh, from Leviticus, 
1918, love your neighbor as yourself. Love requires what? That we meet the needs of others with all the same speed and eagerness and energy and joy and strength that we run to meet our own needs. I remember a rabbi years ago related to me a story about this a junior high school girl in his congregation who would finish poorly in this little uh, junior Miss Beauty, ca- beauty pageant, uh, which her friend actually had won. And she asked uh, her rabbi, now, this is, what does loving my neighbor mean? Does it mean that uh, I need to be as happy for her as I would have been for myself if I had won? And he said, yes, that's the essence of loving your neighbor as yourself. And she said, that is hard. <laughs> Look how staggering these principles, properly understood, are. They reflect both the holiness of God and the debt we owe him as our creator and our, our redeemer. Since he gave us all that we have, we must give him all that we are. When the law expert uh, provides a summary of, of the perfect law and righteousness, he's sure, what does he say? He replies, do this and you will live. What's Yeshua's strategy here? Was he suggesting salvation by good deeds? Not at all. Rather, he's turning the table on the Torah expert. Uh, when we look at the 613 laws of, of the Hebrew Scriptures and, and, and the Tanakh, we look at them individually, all 613, we see there's many that we keep, at least externally, on the surface. But if we look at the full intent behind those laws, behind the commandments, and the hard attitude that those require, for example, not just refraining from murder, from murder, but also not hating in our heart. Not just refraining from adultery, but not lusting in your heart. When we see the principles underlying the commandments, and the kind of life that the Lord is actually after, then we see how utterly we fail to keep the commandments. Yeshua was pointing the Torah scholar to the perfect righteousness that the law demands, so that he can see how powerless he is to fulfill it. Yeshua is seeking to convict the law expert of his sin. And in fact, what he's saying is this, we'll put this on the overhead. He's saying, my friend, I do take the law seriously, even more seriously than you do. Yes, you can be accepted by God if you obey the law perfectly. But look at what the law actually requires. See what it's really after. If you could do that, you'll live. But if you see clearly, you realize that the righteous requirements of the law cannot be fulfilled by your efforts. By the way, by the way Yeshua had the exact same purpose in his confrontation with the rich young ruler. Oh, but he told him to sell all that he had and then sell and give it to the poor. In order to show him you couldn't even keep the first commandment, right? Which is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and all your resources. That was, he showed the rich young ruler he couldn't keep the first great commandment. Now he says this parable, the Good Samaritan, he's confronted the Torah actually with the second great commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. Yeshua is seeking to bring the law expert to despair of any possible salvation through his own personal efforts. So the law expert would cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. But what happens? The law expert tries to resist Yeshua. Uh, He doesn't want to admit that that he's poor, spiritually bankrupt. So he attempts uh, uh, instead to say, 
Uh, he says, the text says he attempts to justify himself, right? He, he attempts to justify himself by asking a question. Who is my neighbor? What's he trying to do? He wants Yeshua, he, he wants Yeshua to define and to limit the second great commandment in such a way as to make his requirements more reasonable. But instead, Yeshua responds with this parable that, that expounds and expands the second great commandment. Uh, to show us to show us the extent and then the essence of the depth and the breadth of the love that God requires. And we'll see we cannot live up to this. Our righteousness cannot save us. We can't save ourselves. Salvation is only by the mercy of God through Yeshua, just as the Samaritan showed mercy to the Jewish man lying half dead in the road. Uh, John Bunyan, we'll put this on the overhead, uh, he writes this about his own his own conversion experience, a uh, great uh, uh, author of Pilgrim's Progress. He says, I now saw that my righteousness was holy in Messiah. My good frame of heart didn't make my righteousness any better, for my righteousness was solely in Messiah alone. Now my chains fell off, and there was nothing but Messiah before my eyes. Now I can stop looking at myself and look to him. And I saw that all my goodness and morality were like those pennies that the rich men carry in their purses when their gold is safe in their trunks at home. Oh, I saw my gold was now safe in my trunk at home. In Yeshua. Yeshua was now my all. My Lord God and Savior. He's all my righteousness, all my sanctification, all my redemption. We've got to keep in mind the context of this parable, or easily fall into the trap of morality of salvation by works. Yeshua is not telling us to be saved by imitating the good Samaritan, although he does want us to imitate and follow his pattern. Rather, Yeshua is seeking to humble us with the love that God requires of us, that we'll be able and willing then to receive the love that God offers to us. He's trying to show this law expert. Uh, that he, and that you, uh, and I, and, and even the best of us, even our best efforts, are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to commend ourselves before God. But in his mercy, God has offered us freely the riches of his righteousness in Yeshua. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. If you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, that though he was rich, for yet, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The mercy of God is Yeshua bestowing his spiritual riches on you, you who and I who are spiritually bankrupt. But the law expert, he doesn't want to admit this. He doesn't want to admit his spiritual bankruptcy. So he tries to get Yeshua to whittle down the law to make it doable. So he asks, who's my neighbor? And then Yeshua tells this parable. And in the parable, a Jewish traveler from Jerusalem uh, and it is robbed and beaten and, and left for dead on the dangerous Jericho Road, this road that was known as a, as a hideout for, for thieves and bandits. Uh, the priests and the Levite, they come along. They see their fellow Jew, their fellow countrymen, lying on the road, but they ignore him. Uh, and they pass by the other side. But that's not all they pass by. In the process, they also pass by the very teaching of Scripture itself. They have mercy on the stranger in need. But the irony of this story is, what, uh, is that the priests and the Levites, the very officers of God's people who were charged in the Torah 
with helping the needy. You have the element of their their own schedule, full of ceremonies and ritual religious duties, against the very purpose of what they were supposed to be as a priest and a Levite. And they ignored the principle of 1 Samuel 15.22. To obey is better than sacrifice. What about us? We are all priests of God and Messiah. Are we obeying this command to help our neighbor? point is, the ministry of mercy is not optional for you if you're a believer. Rather, it's one of the scripture's signs of true faith. But all the types of different types of aid the Samaritan provided to the injured Jewish man. As I said, the Jericho Road was known as a place where, where thieves and, and muggers uh, hung out. They lurked. Uh, so this guy, he risked his own life uh, and to stop and protect this man from, from further attack. Uh, and some of the different things he gave him on the overhead. Uh, so he, he gave him uh, protection, he gave him his personal friendship and time, he stopped to help him, he was his protector and his advocate, he provided transportation, uh, the donkey, uh, medical care, the oil and the wine, poured out his wounds, room and board uh, at the inn, a financial subsidy, and he agrees to pay the innkeeper for any further expenses, he stays overnight at the inn, personally caring for him, in some, at great personal cost, he altered his whole schedule, all his plans, to help this man, this stranger. In short, the Good Samaritan met the man's full range of physical and economic needs. This is what this parable in, in this parable Yeshua calls acts of mercy. This is Yeshua's description for how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is not optional. Yeshua uses the works of mercy to show us the essence of the righteousness that God requires in all our relationships with one another here at a time. Indeed, if we fail to provide for our own brothers and sisters, how can the love of God be in us? The truth is, works of mercy are actually fundamental tests of the reality of our faith. And this parable, by the way, is far from an isolated example. For example, well, James and John also use mercy as a text. Or the test of whether the love of Yeshua is in our hearts, it is his ministry of mercy. Here's what John says. Look at 1 John 3.17. John says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Real love is expressed in deeds. Not just words. Indeed, faith without deeds, James says it, Yaakov says it's dead. It's, it's fake faith. Any sort of fake news? <laughs> well, well, this is fake faith. Look at James 2, verse 13. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not himself been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if you claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such a faith save you? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and you say to him, Oh, I wish you well, keep warm, be well fed. But you don't do anything to actually help his physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself without action is dead. In Proverbs 14 and again in Proverbs 19, we're told that what we do, ignore the needs of a poor person, that's the, that's the sin against the Lord. So the poor and the needy are a test. 
Our response to them tests the genuineness of your faith. And Yeshua drives home this point in this famous parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. In this parable, Yeshua describes how he'll evaluate us on Judgment Day, and he distinguishes those who have true faith from those who don't. How does he do this? By examining their fruit, and in particular, their concern for the poor and the homeless and the sick and the prisoners. And then Matthew 25, 40, he sums it up by saying this. Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, these brothers of mine, you did for me. And in saying this, he's just expounding, by the way, in Proverbs 19, 17, which says, He who's kind to the poor lends to the Lord. He's agreeing with James and John and Isaiah and the whole rest of Scripture in saying that a life poured out in deeds of mercy is a sign of true faith. By such deed, God judges those who have true love in their hearts from those who sit in congregations and just have lip service. So imagine a wealthy old woman. Uh, She has no heirs except a a nephew who's always kind and and nice to her. But how can she know if her kindness is just in order to to get get her inheritance? How does she know what's really in his heart? So what does she do? She dresses up one day as a homeless bad lady, and she lays on the steps of her nephew's fancy townhouse, begging for money. And he comes out the door one morning, he sees his old bad lady, and he curses her, and he kicks her, and he threatens to call the cops unless she moves on. Now she knows his true character. In the same way, God is angry at us when we have one face for him and another for the needy. And the poor. This is one of the reasons we're told our prayers are not answered. Look at Isaiah 1.15. When you spread your hands in prayer, I God said, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many, many prayers, I will not listen. Take your evil deeds from my sight. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Yeshua is saying to us today, I am the homeless bad lady on your steps. How you treat her is how you treat me. Matthew 25, 45. Truly I tell you, Yeshua says, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Listen to this very famous Scottish preacher from the 1800s, Robert Murray McShane. When he says about helping the poor, put this on the overhead, he says this, I fear there are some self-professed believers among you to whom Yeshua cannot say, come my beloved, inherit the kingdom. Your haughty dwellings rise in the midst of thousands who have scarce a fire to keep out the biting frost. Yet you've never darkened their doors. You give a sigh perhaps at a distance, but you don't visit them. Ah, my dear friends, I'm concerned for the poor, but more for you. I do. I know now that Messiah will save you on that great day. You say you're believers, but you do not care for his poor. What will happen to you on the great judgment day? He who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. I fear there are many hearing me who know who now know well that they are not believers because they don't love to give. 
to give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, to do that requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly. For I tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Well, the Bible is teaching on the ministry of mercy. It doesn't just begin with this good Samaritan. It's the clear teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. Uh, for example, uh, Job recounts how regularly he would provide food and shelter and clothing to the needy. Look at Job 29, uh, verse 16. Job says, I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. Uh, I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. You know, in the Torah itself, we're forbidden, what? We're forbidden to harvest all the produce of our fields, so the poor can glean from what's left over. We're commanded to leave the corners of our field uh, for the poor and the needy. The Torah commands us to, to give to the poor, especially if he is a kinsman or a neighbor. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. Is that anyone is poor among your people? In any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-distant toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend with them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then the Lord your God will bless you with everything you put your hand to. I command you to be open-hearted, open-handed toward those of your people who are poor and needy in the land. You know, when we fail to do this, the Lord sent prophet after prophet to rebuke us. Prophet after prophet denounced Israel's uh, insensitivity to the poor as breaking their covenant with God. Amos actually equates our materialism and our ignoring of the poor with idolatry and adultery. Isaiah says our mercy to the poor uh, is evidence of our true heart commitment to God. Look at Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice? Untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free? To break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them? And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then the Lord will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go forth before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. It was no coincidence Yeshua chose Isaiah 61 for his first ever sermon. And in this he highlights his own messianic credentials, which include preaching to the poor. So look at Isaiah 61 verse 10. Yeshua said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me, he has sent me to bind up the broken heart. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the blind. Yeshua himself, by the way, was born into poverty. His mother and stepfather had to offer two pigeons at his circumcision, which was the special offering prescribed for the poorest of the poor. He associated with lepers and outcasts, the lowest classes of society. He himself was homeless, so that I had no place to lay my head. He taught that we are all spiritually poor and bankrupt. That our good deeds are as filthy rags before God. Uh, and because he freely gives us his spiritual riches, we should therefore do good to all, especially in the household of faith. 
that he would open our hands to our brothers in need. Now, we here at Chaim, we endeavor to do that in many, many ways. Uh, and all of you have, have participated in many of you, most of you have participated in that, uh, networking to help people with, with medical or legal needs, uh, um, volunteering our services in various ways, helping one another find job and, and job training, providing meals, providing transportation. Some of you actually provide free housing to people here. And most of all, to help through our Mercy Fund. You know, that's time here we aim every year to give a double tithe, um, to give it away, to give 10% internally uh, through our Mercy Fund to those in need internally, and 10% to outside ministries uh, and missionaries. And you can help through volunteering your services, uh, your time, your labor, uh, your skills, your job contacts and networks, and by donating to our Mercy Fund over and above your tithe. And the truth be known, we have many, many more needs in our midst than we have mercy funds to provide for. So, uh, put this in the overhead, the summary. Number one, the law requires a love for God and for neighbor that we can never achieve on our own. Uh, and this drives us to Yeshua and his grace. Number two, this ministry of mercy is not optional. Rather, it's the essence of how you are to live if you are a Yeshua follower. And then number three, what therefore is the true motivation our, our lifestyle of mercy. What should drive us to care for the poor? Is it a mere sense of duty? Is it a good Jewish guilt trip? <laughs> no, not at all. The only true, the only enduring motive for extending mercy and help to others is to experience and grasp the, great, the grace of God ourselves in the gospel. If we know, if you know that you are sinners saved by grace, then you'll be open and generous to the outcasts, to the unlovely people of this world. Because you'll see you're no better than they are. Uh, and you'll be grateful for the mercy that God has given us, and therefore you want to extend that same mercy to others. You know, this law expert, he confronts Yeshua in Luke 10. This law expert, he's a legalist. Uh, he believes his own moral efforts will earn him God's favor. He wants to justify himself and therefore minimize the requirements of the law. Yeshua, however, seeks to show him he's totally insufficient to save himself. Uh, Yeshua does this by giving him a vivid picture uh, in, in this parable of the love that God's law really requires of us. And Yeshua's goal is to show this law expert that though he thought he was spiritually rich, in reality, he's spiritually bankrupt. To be bankrupt means you can't pay your debts, uh, you're out of resources. Uh, you, know, you admit how desperate you are. Yeshua declares as blessed those who realize and admit this. Look at Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Uh, here's what David, Dr. David Martin Lloyd Jones says about what it means to be uh, poor in spirit. Put it on the overhead. He says it means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of, of self-assurance, of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in God's presence. Uh, it's nothing, then, that, that we can produce. It's nothing we can do in ourselves. It's this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness has become face-to-face -face with God. That's to be poor in spirit. You see, then, Yeshua's goal here is to show this law expert that he was poor and then to prepare him to seek spiritual riches in God's mercy. This, this Torah scholar, has, first has to be shown as Isaiah 64, verse 6 says. 
that all of us have become like one who's unclean. And all of our righteousness before God's eyes are like filthy rags. I think the actual Hebrew is much more graphic. I'll leave it at that. Basically, Isaiah says, we are like a street leper in God's sight. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, uh, the most unsightly, smelly, decrepit, homeless person wandering the streets of Dallas in rags. His mind is half gone. He, he has no resources. He has nothing to recommend him. That is what all of us are before God, Isaiah says. She was trying to show this law expert that he's that half-dead man lying in the road in the parable. But the, I'm going to put this in the overhead, but the gospel is this. That though we're all lying in our own blood, spiritually bankrupt and lost, that God provided spiritual wealth for us in Yeshua. He empowers his own son so that his spiritual riches, his righteousness, could be given to those who believe. That's the gospel. Paul summarizes it like this in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then a few chapters later, Paul actually restates this in, in vivid economic terms. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. For though he was rich, and for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You and I were sitting in a dung heap. But by his grace, Yeshua has clothed you with kingly robes and sat you at his festal banquet table. The gospel is though that you are naturally poor, you've been made rich in the mercy of God. And there are two powerful effects this gospel has on us. The one who knows he's received mercy while totally being an undeserving enemy of God or the heart of love for the most ungrateful and difficult people. When we see prostitutes and alcoholics and prisoners and drug addicts and unwed mothers and the homeless and the refugees, we know that we are looking in a mirror. We realize that though I may, I may be personally, economically and socially different from, from these types of people, yet spiritually I am just like them. They're outcast. I was an outcast. Now, many people are quick to, to limit their charity only those that they call the, quote, deserving poor. Be careful here. Were you ever deserving of God's mercy? Was I? I know the answer for me is a definite no. Yeshua's mercy was not based on our worthiness. It's the opposite. It was given to make us worthy. And so, too, we should not be self-righteous in deciding who deserves our mercy, deciding who's my neighbor. And now we see why Yeshua and Isaiah and James and John and Paul all use the ministry of mercy as a way to judge between true and false believers. A merely religious person who believes that God's, uh, God favors him because of his morality and his respectability, they often will have contempt for the outcast. I work hard to get where I am. So should they. But, he, but the heart of a Yeshua follower says this. I'm only where I am by the sheer grace of God. The Messiah of mercy. Unlimited mercy for me. 
I am completely equal to other people. I am no better. This is the heart of someone who is grasped by the grace of God and therefore wants to extend that same grace to others. Secondly, grace uh, creates generosity. Uh, the priest and the Levite, they didn't stop to help their fellow countrymen, despite all the biblical injunctions to do so. But the Samaritan, he had no obligation, no expectation to converse to this Jew, uh, his, his sworn enemy. He owed him nothing. No one would have expected him to stop and help. Yet he stops. And he helps. Why? The text tells us, Luke 10, 33, but when the Samaritan saw him, he was moved with compassion. He took pity on him. There's compassion in the heart of any real Yeshua follower who knows the sinner saved by grace. There's compassion in your heart. Look at the, for example, the Macedonian believers' uh, gifts to the poor Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. Paul writes this. In the midst of a very severe trial, the Macedonians overflowing joy and their, even their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. The Macedonians, they were poor themselves. They were going through terrible trials of their own. What then was their motives to give to the saints in Jerusalem? Paul says it was their overflowing joy that they gave themselves first to the Lord. It was their response uh, to, to the Lord, to the self-emptying Lord. Uh, their gifts were a response not to their income levels, but their response to the gift of Messiah to them. Let me put this on the overhead. It's kind of a summary here. Mercy is a spontaneous, superabounding love <coughs> which comes from the experience of the grace of God. And the deeper the ex your experience of the grace of God, the more generous you become. The desire to give joyfully comes only from a new heart. Put another way, the ministry of mercy is a sacrifice of praise to God's grace. Wow. And Yeshua is not here for us to, to bodily anoint his feet. But when we have the poor uh, to serve as a sacrifice of praise to the Lord, his, his love for us, we have them. It's a gift of praise to the Lord. But 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this. He who spares, who sows sparingly, will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. As it's written, they have scattered abroad their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And because of this service, by which you proved yourselves, people will praise God. Uh, for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Messiah, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. So Paul is pointing out here uh, in every way our generosity and our works of mercy abound to God's praise, and our witness, both to believers and unbelievers alike. So imagine you're deathly ill, uh, God forbid it, and the doctor comes to you and says, We've got this brand new medicine, it's just approved by the FDA. Uh, that will cure you. It's extremely expensive, but without it, you'll die. Uh, but, by the way, it's not covered by insurance. You can't get it through Obamacare. Uh, and it's so expensive, you'll have to probably sell your car, maybe even sell your house to buy it. So you may not want to spend so much. And you say, 
What are you talking about? <laughs> what good is my car? What good is my house? I'm dead. I must have that medicine. It's precious to me. These other things that used to be so important to me, but not so important compared to this medicine. And in the same way, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, verse 7. To you who believe, Messiah is precious. The grace of God makes Messiah precious to us. Yeah. So that in comparison, our money, our possessions, our time, they're utterly expendable. They used to be crucial to our happiness, but now they're, they're no longer so. So indeed, Paul says this, Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So what is that is our ultimate motivation for helping others? How do we overcome our natural tendency to only want to help ourselves and help our own? Who is my neighbor? Don't you show intentionally he creates this parable of a Samaritan helping a Jew. As I said before, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Uh, indeed, one of the worst insults for a Jewish person to call somebody was to, was, was to uh, call him a Samaritan. In fact, if you look at John 8, John chapter 8, the religious leaders, they're really mad at Yeshua, and they didn't know what else to, what else to say to him, what else to call the names to call him. They finally say to him, you, 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 you Samaritan. <laughs> worst name to call someone. Yeshua, by having a Samaritan rescue a Jew, is saying, my friend, do you know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor, the neighbor who you have to love is yourself. Your neighbor is anyone in your past. Anyone you find that needs your help. As he said, this Samaritan, he had no legal obligation to help this Jew. He had no moral obligation, uh, no social or societal obligation. No one would have expected him to stop. Why did he stop? The text says he's filled with compassion. Let me put this on the overhead here. This Greek word for compassion is splanzamai. And it literally means to be moved with bowels of pity. To be moved from the foundations of your being with pity. It, by the way, is the exact same word most often used to describe the emotional state of Yeshua himself. The Samaritan was moved with the love of Messiah. Here's the point. If you understand that you are poor, and that Yeshua poured out his riches on you, you were that Jew in the middle of the road, and Yeshua came by and stopped and impoverished himself for you. It will change your life once you grasp this. Until you see that Yeshua was your neighbor, you won't have the motivation to be yourself a neighbor to others. And now you understand why Yeshua says, if you really know that you are a sinner saved by grace, if you really believe the gospel, you will then be motivated now to truly help others. Because you'll know that when you were dying in your blood, in the middle of the road, Yeshua, who had no obligation to help you, nonetheless came and poured out his riches on you, so that you could be healed and made whole. And in light of all of this, now Robert Gerber shamed again, he says this, and put on the overhead. He says, Now, dear believers, some of you pray day and night to be branches of the true vine, to be conformed the image of Messiah. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
Objection. One. My money's my own. Answer. Messiah may have said, may have said my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where would we be? Objection two. The poor, they're undeserving. Answer. Messiah may have said, these humans are undeserving. They're wicked rebels. Shall I lay my life down for these? No, I'll give to the good angels instead. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three. The poor may abuse it. Answer. Messiah may have said the same thing, yea, with far greater truth. Uh, Messiah knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, if you will be like Yeshua, give much, give often, give freely to the poor and the needy, Messiah is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It's not your money that I want, but your happiness. Remember his own words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So what's the point here of Yeshua's parable? Let me summarize it like this. He's humbling us with the mercy that God requires so that we can receive the mercy that God offers. This is the essence of the gospel. Like that Jew, beaten and robbed, all of us lie hopeless and helpless and bankrupt, dying in the road. Like the Samaritan, Yeshua, who was our natural enemy, who owes us nothing, nevertheless stops and gives us his spiritual riches and saves us. Yeshua is depicted himself in this parable. He is the good Samaritan. The story depicts the pattern of God's mercy. And it's impossible not to see Yeshua in this pattern. And when you properly see yourself as the man lying in the road, as spiritually helpless and destitute, then you'll have the proper biblical motivation to live a life of generosity towards the outcast and the needy and the poor among us. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I'm with the music team. Youth team to come back up. Uh, hallelujah. Father, we thank you for these parables. This is the first one we looked at today of the Good Samaritan. We thank you for this amazing parable. Lord, we thank you that, uh, that Yeshua, like Yeshua, he's trying to show this, this law expert in the parable. Uh, help us, Lord, today to see that we are sinners in need of your grace. Show us that without you, Yeshua, we are spiritually bankrupt. And that our true riches lie in your mercy and in your mercy alone. Drive home to us today, Lord, that in your sight we are like uh, the homeless derelict wandering the streets of Dallas. Uh, we're, half, we're the half-dead Jew lying in our own blood on the Jericho Road. But also press upon us, Lord, that you, Yeshua, are the Good Samaritan. You came to rescue us despite no obligation for you to do so. Despite us being your enemies, you Yeshua a great cost to yourself. You came down from heaven to earth. You lived the life we should have lived. You died the death we should have died. You shed your blood uh, uh, to buy us back from destruction. You rose again the third day, uh, giving us new life if you repent and trust in you. Though you were rich, Yeshua, you became poor. 
so that by your poverty we might become rich. You clothed us with festal robes. You sat us at your banquet table. So now, Lord, help us now, let everything you've done for us, help us to be tender-hearted towards others, to show mercy and grace to those in need. Help us to think we're not better than anybody else, those who may be currently down and out and in need. Help us to see that they are my neighbor. Help us to have your heart, Yeshua, and be moved with compassion. Let us see our given to others as a sacrifice of praise to you. And impress upon us, Lord, that as we sow generously, we will reap generously. For we will be following your very pattern, Yeshua, of your life. We pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.